Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. You awake? Woo! You catch the word? It's so unstoppable. That's what we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks, several passages through the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, grab that, join me. My name is James. I'm so, so glad you guys are here. Thanks for being here this morning. A special thanks to those joining us online. We're going to study God's Word like we do when we get together, and we're jumping back into the book of Acts. We took just a little break because there was something kind of important with the Easter holiday, and we spent a couple weeks talking about abundant life. But one of the things that's really neat as we jump back into the book of Acts is that's also what they're talking about. Because truly, it's, it's the abundant life that is offered by God's grace. It comes through professing faith in Christ. It comes with us joining God where he's at work. And that notion, that formation of the early church is something we're going to learn over the next several chapters is unstoppable. It's a really neat descriptive word about God's universal church. His church that's made up of a bunch of individual churches, Christ followers all over the world. It's unstoppable. We know this as we study God's word. The early church spreads. It's spread now today to virtually all of the world. And it will continue to spread. It will continue to grow until Jesus returns. Now, here's something that we can be certain of. As flawed as those individual churches that make up the universal church might be and will be, because they're led by fallen people in this fallen world, we know we're going to make mistakes, the promise still rings true. God's plan is still unstoppable. It's just going to keep pressing forward. And we know this because we see it in God's word. It's Matthew chapter 16. It says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, you ready for this? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's God's church. That's something we really need to be remembering, okay? We got an email this week into the office, and we get a bunch of these, and they're great. And this one was about a particular doctrinal stance here at the church. And I remember the wording was just such that it caught me. It said, at your church, do you? And I went, time out. <laughs> it's not our church, right? This is God's church. And that's something that God really has pressed on me so hard over the last several years. And I know you've heard this because I, I go to great lengths to try and talk this way. It's extra words. And when I write, I write this way. I never say, well, this is my church. I don't want to say Orchard's Community Church is my church. If you've heard me, I'll say this is the church where God has me on staff because it's his work. He's doing it. It's his church. But this notion of being together as a sold-out group of Christ followers just clinging to Jesus until he returns, that part is unstoppable because that part is God's plan. Now, here's the problem with using a word like unstoppable. We overuse it, right? We look at things that exist in this fallen world that do endure, they do persevere, they, they seem hard to stop, and we say, well, that's unstoppable. There's a big movie several years ago, 2010. It was based on a true story. It had Denzel Washington, Chris Pine in it. I'm not recommending the movie. I haven't seen the movie, but man, I love me some Denzel Washington. He's great. But, but the movie, if you remember, was about a runaway train. Do you remember the title of that film? Unstoppable. I'm pretty sure in the end, I didn't see it, I think Denzel and Chris Pine stopped that train, right? 
It was based on a true story, and like they do with all movies that are based on a true story, they changed some things. They moved the location from Ohio, where it actually happened, to Pennsylvania. They added a lot more hazardous chemicals to the train. They increased the speed of the train, and yet in real life, and with our buddy Denzel, they stopped the train. So by definition, the movie title is wrong. It wasn't unstoppable. See how we use that word? I want to share a quote, and this is from a guy who was a former professional athlete, played in the NFL. This is a guy who actually wound up playing for the Cleveland Browns, so you know right away he was not unstoppable, right? (laughs) Is that a cheap shot? I can do that for my own team. (laughs) I can throw some shade. This is a quote from a player named Robert Griffin III, RG3. He said this, I like to think I'm pretty smart with what I was able to do academically, but whenever I get on the field, I turn into the Incredible Hulk, and I am unstoppable. Griffin won the Heisman Trophy in college his senior year at Baylor, and then he had a phenomenal rookie season with what was then the Washington Redskins. They hadn't been to the playoffs forever. They made the playoffs, and in the playoffs, he had a knee injury and never fully recovered. Robert Griffin was stoppable. (laughs) It's unfortunate that injury is what brought him down, but church, here's the deal. It may be our own actions. It may be the actions of others that impact us, but whatever it is here in this world, Trains, incredible athletes, the Incredible Hulk, if you were real, they're all stoppable. Only God's plan, only his will, only his church is truly unstoppable. So that's what we're going to focus on in this section of our text today and over the next probably couple months, that God's church is unstoppable. So if you have your Bible, here we are, Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 23 to 35, almost close out this chapter. And One of the questions that gets asked a bunch in the church in America, for sure, and I think across the world, people ask, what does the Christian church really need? What do we need in the church? And the big answer that always comes up is revival, right? We need a revival. And that's why it was big news earlier this year. There was a chapel service at a small Christian university in Kentucky, Asbury, Kentucky. Did you hear about this? And they were having their chapel service on February 8th. And after the end of the service, the students didn't leave. They just stayed, continued to pray. And that prayer meeting lasted 17 days. Some days, upwards of 15,000 people. Hughes Auditorium, where the chapel was, would only hold a few hundred. And, And these people would just gather around this auditorium and pray. It was amazing, right? It was exciting. We can and should get fired up over events like this because they're part of God's plan for his unstoppable church. But that revival in Kentucky made a lot of people ask that question. What needs to happen so we see more of this? And the hard truth is what we're going to see in our passage today. And we can see it over the course of history, honestly. Most revival has not come because of a prayer meeting. Most revival has not come. I'm from the Bible Belt from the Midwest, and we used to see this all the time. I don't know that you see it so much in the Northwest, but you used to have the tent revival. Do you remember that? And I'm dating myself a little bit. But the the evangelist would swing in from out of town and he'd set up his tent on the outskirts of town and he'd preach for five nights in a row this hellfire and brimstone message and and people would come to the Lord, praise the Lord. But but you look at something like that and you go, was that impact lasting? Can that continue? How effective is that? You know the thing that seems to be most effective in creating revival in the history of the church? You ready? Persecution. Persecution. Throughout time, persecution has almost always made the church stronger because persecution highlights the difference between the world 
and the church. It highlights who's really in, no matter what the cost, and who's really out. Persecution drives the church to prayer. Amen? It brings unity in the name of brotherly love. And because of that, quite often, persecution has the opposite effect of what the people who are doing the persecuting really intend. Instead of decimating the church, persecution quite often grows the church. Man, you can see this if you study the Asian culture. You can see this in predominantly Muslim areas. And so those facts might lead us to say, well, gosh, let's just start praying for persecution. And I know it's happening in the world today, and I get it in theory. I still struggle with the idea of praying for it because I'm not a fan of suffering, right? My fallenness, my weakness gets in the way there. I've really been convicted about my prayer life this week, and so just know if something weird happens, I've been praying for persecution. Here's the bottom line, okay? Because we focus on what we're supposed to learn as we study God's word. I'm going to trust God's sovereignty regarding whatever kind of persecution he wants us to face, but church, we're supposed to be ready for it. That's our role. Be ready when it comes. I've already had this discussion with our ministry council from several years ago. There are areas in this world where if the government would all of a sudden come in and and say, well, the church needs to do this. I'm going to dictate the church would do that if you want to continue being called a church. You know, continue to enjoy tax-exempt status. Here's what would happen here at Orchards. We would change our name. We would no longer be Orchards Community Church. We'd just be Orchards Community. I'd give up that word on our website so that we could continue to be God's church. Because what does his word say? The gates of hell will not overcome his church. We just won't get to write off our donations anymore, right? But God's church is unstoppable. I've talked about this with the ministry council. I've prayed about this. I've journaled about this. I could easily see myself going to jail. Because here at Orchard's Community, we're not going to be moved away from teaching God's word. That's just the bottom line. Amen? Praise the Lord. Now, now that hasn't happened yet. And, and I mean, I, I've faced opposition for being a pastor. I've never been thrown in jail. I've never been beaten. I've never had my personal property confiscated for declaring my allegiance to God. But if it would happen... Is that where I see God at work? I pray that it would be. Here's the reality. We don't face much intense persecution today. But I want to say what we see in this passage still applies because how we deal with trials in general is something that we need to focus on. I've run into a whole bunch of Christ followers, some around the world, mostly here in America, and and the reality is we don't have a real adequate theology of suffering. Suffering shows up and we don't know how to process it. So the trials come, the circumstances come, and what do we do? We get angry at God. We rage at God instead of submitting to his plan. It seems like a lot of Christ followers think we have a right to health and wealth, and and so trials come, and what happens? We become bitter instead of becoming better because that's I'm positive why the trials are there. Persecution will either drive people away from God and cause us to be bitter, or it'll drive us closer to God. And we'll be better. We'll join God in his unstoppable mission. All that to say, this passage we're going to study shows us actually the response of the early church to persecution. That's where we took our break, right before Easter. Earlier in chapter 4, Peter and John had just been arrested. Do you remember what they were arrested for? They healed a lame guy and then had the audacity 
to preach about the resurrection. They preached the gospel with boldness. And so what we're going to see here today is how they respond, how the church responds to that persecution. And it's amazing because their response is they draw close to God in prayer. And it shows how the church should treat one another. It shows how God's church that he created is supposed to continue to make disciples who make disciples, even in the face of opposition, even in the face of persecution. So when those persecutions, when those sufferings, those trials come, as the church, we should affirm the priorities that we have listed on your outline if you grabbed one coming in. But the first one is this. We need to be committed to God. Is that a question we're asking ourselves? Am I committed to God? Let's look at the text together. We'll have this on the Sky Bible if you need it. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. We're going to read through verse 31. Dr. Luke writes, When Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, the church, they lifted their voices together to God. And look what they did. They prayed. They prayed this phenomenal prayer that will carry us through verse 30. They said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, they quote some scripture, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together. Who were they gathered together against? The Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, who? Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is us praying right here is where we'd say amen. But look what happened in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So Peter and John get out of jail. What happens? They immediately go back to their buddies in the church and they told them what happened. And their spontaneous response was, man, we better pray. I love that. And what we see here in the text is probably the highlights of their corporate prayer. I don't think they had one prayer spokesperson. This is the takeaways from the corporate body. But verse 24 tells us they were of one accord. They're praying and they're all in sync with this prayer. Can the same thing be said of the church today? When we pray, or are we of one accord? Well, that's a challenging question, isn't it? When we are offering our prayers for God's unstoppable church, are we just throwing out our personal laundry list of prayer requests? Are we praying for God's very best for his church in this world? And I'm not saying don't pray for Aunt Bessie's bunions because those hurt from what I understand. I'm not saying don't ever pray for personal requests, right? God cares about those things. But is that all we pray for? Are we spending any time praying for the salvation of lost people? Are we spending any time praying for the leaders of the world, the leaders of our nation, for the leaders of your local churches? Are we praying that those folks would just be sold out to God's best for his people? 
I think the most remarkable thing about this prayer in John in Acts chapter 4 is that even as this prayer meeting is happening, it's happening right after Peter and John were just locked up, right? But this prayer only includes one very brief mention about the circumstances the church was experiencing. Did you catch that? It's in verse 29. They, they pray, oh, Lord, take note of their threats. And that's it. There's no mention of the persecution. There's no request to be spared from further persecution. They seem actually to have embraced this pattern of prayer that comes in how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. You remember that prayer? We call it the Lord's Prayer, right? And I'm not saying we got to pray those words all the time, but there's a beautiful pattern in that. You guys know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, right here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Church, do we pray like that? Look at the early church here in Acts chapter 4. And in this prayer from our text, we see five verses of them hallowing God's name. They start out just reverencing God. They're in awe of God before they finally get around to that second part and they pray for his kingdom to come. And do you see how they pray for his kingdom to come? They say, God, give us boldness to go preach your word. Give us power to share your message. And not once in this prayer do these persecuted people offer requests for their needs. And again, this is not prescriptive. Don't think you're not supposed to pray for health and pray for your finances and pray for your careers, your livelihoods, your families. No, God cares about those things. We should be praying about those things. But do we pray with the right priority? Do we demonstrate that we're committed to God by praying first for his kingdom to come? Do we pray first for his will to be done before we pray for all our stuff? That's hard because we focus a lot on our stuff. <laughs> I had the chance this week, and it was a lot of fun. I, I led the worship team Bible study. They normally don't let me come because I can't sing. But there wasn't any singing with this. It was just leading the Bible study. And I was, I'm good at that. God's really good. So, so I showed up, and we were, they're walking through the book of Job, right? That's a tough study. <laughs> you know, chapter after chapter after chapter of God, it just seems like beating Job down, Right? In this day and age, Job would be a Cleveland Browns fan and a Mariners fan. I'm positive. Just teams that break your heart over and over again. Job slogs through chapter after chapter of tribulation and grief and disappointment and bad counsel from his friends. Now, praise the Lord, we've got the completed canon of Scripture. We can go to the end and see God's purpose in these trials, the glorious end of that book. And Job admits this. He says, God, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. How many reminders do we need that God's plan is unstoppable? He says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. But then he says this. He says, God, I really wanted to know you. And, and it looks like it happened, how? Through these trials that Job experienced. That's what God was up to. And we know this. Look at verse 5. Job says, before I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, before all my trials, God, I knew about you. But now, now that I've experienced all the trials, what happened? My eyes see you. Now that you've brought me through this, I know you, God. Church, is that our priority in prayer? Do we pray because we want to know God better? Do we pray for his will to be done, not my will to be done? A great challenge. 
When we're of one accord with God's will in our prayer, we're gonna pray like that pattern we see in the Lord's Prayer. We're gonna pray like these folks in the early church who totally trusted in God's power, who totally recognized his sovereignty. They totally recognized he made everything. He can speak things into existence. And he'll give them all the power they need through his Holy Spirit. They get that. God is with them. He hears and answers prayers. And, and they get that incredible deal that, that, man, I pray that we would get. They say amen, they finish their prayer, and everything starts shaking. Would that get our attention? Is that what we feel like we need sometimes? It's incredible. I, I wish I'd been at that prayer meeting. And, and we don't know what it was. It could have been some kind of localized earthquake. We can't be sure. But what it was was a demonstration of God's power. He's like, oh, I'm here. I'll literally shake the foundation. And I get that a, a display of power like that is helpful for folks who are wanting to go out and proclaim God's word with boldness, which is what they were praying for anyway. This was a wise prayer. So they show they're committed to God through prayer. We can also show that we're committed to God by recognizing his sovereignty. And that's what we see. That, that's how these folks prayed. Did you catch that in verse 24? That's the title they called him. I pray a lot of times, and you hear me, I call God Daddy, and I've heard lots of people use different titles. I don't hear that one much anymore. Do we start our prayers that way? Sovereign Lord. It's a great way to pray. It affirms that nothing in this world happens that God didn't ordain to happen. That's what they say. Everything that takes place, takes place how? By your hand, God, through your plan. These folks are strong theologians, and this is admirable because what did they just see? Peter and John get persecuted. They know for a fact many of them will be persecuted, and yet they're humble. They're focused on God in their prayer. They completely trust the sovereign God is at work. Now, we read this in this passage, and it sounds pretty sweet. Be honest. Is that easy? We know that it's not. I'm going to share a quote from an author named Jerry Bridges. He's authored several really good books. This one comes from his book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. Bridges is talking about trials. He's talking about persecution. And he writes this, That which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that the believer's suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan. And so he brings or allows to come into our lives only that which is for his glory and our good. Do we believe that? The things that God allows in our lives are only for his glory and our good? These Christ followers in the early church, they got that. They totally believed that. We can affirm our commitment to God by praying we can do it by trusting he's in control. We can also do it, and I love this, by knowing and applying his word in our lives. I said before, I think this is the highlights of a corporate prayer, but there was at least one person in that prayer group who knew scripture well enough to quote it, right? They knew the first couple verses in Psalm 2. That's what we see in verses 25 and 26 of Acts chapter 4. They knew that David was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write that down. So they knew all about God's word. And they were going to take that from the Psalms and apply it in their current life, which is what we're doing every time we open God's word. We're saying that was written then. How do we apply it now? Because back in Psalm 2, there's a mention of the Gentiles and the peoples from the Psalms. And they flip it to address their current situation. 
They say, well, there's Gentiles and the people of Israel in Jesus' day, and they're just doing whatever God's sovereign plan would have them do. And Psalm 2 talks about kings and earthly rulers. And so here in Acts 4, we hear about kings and earthly rulers, and they name them Herod and Pontius Pilate. Those, those were people who were aligned against God. They were aligned together against Jesus. Now, here's the thing that we get studying history. Herod and Pontius Pilate had no idea that what they were doing was futile. They were not going to take down God's unstoppable church. It might have been helpful if they actually knew Psalm 2 because they could have kept reading. And David shares this. I love this verse. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Who sits in the heavens? That's God. We know that. And in context, he, he laughs. Why? Because the Lord holds them, who is them, these kings and rulers, people who are plotting against God. It says God holds them in derision. I love that picture of God sitting up there laughing going, you think you win? I win. That's funny to him. It's foolish to fight against God. People like Herod did it. People like Pontius Pilate did it. They thought at the crucifixion that they'd won. And God's going, <laughs> you didn't win at all. Jesus died and I raised him from the dead. And I did that because he was going to go and be the substitute for sinful man. That was my plan from the beginning. And we can know that today. We can recall those details. When we do what? When we immerse ourselves in God's love letter that he's written to us to apply today. He's written it by human hands. He's written it through divine inspiration. But we get it today to guide our prayers. We get it today to study, to know how to live and join him in this world. I think there's so much wisdom in setting out to know God's word, ready, before the trials come in our lives. If we're familiar with God's word before the trial hits, we're going to be that much better equipped to apply God's word in our lives. We're going to be that much better off seeking God's will, praying for discernment about the lessons he wants to teach us. Otherwise, if we're not familiar with God's word, what happens? We just react. We react to the crisis situation. We react to the persecution in our lives, and our reactions are not always godly. So we show commitment to God through prayer, through acknowledging his sovereignty, through knowing and applying his word. And finally, we do it through imitating Jesus. And that's a command we see in God's word a bunch. The apostle Paul literally says that. Follow me, how? As I follow Christ. But that's not just Paul. That notion is seen throughout the Bible. That notion is at the heart of sanctification, like we talked about a couple weeks ago. All Christ's followers are called to become more like Jesus. Well, there's a great nod to that here in this passage. Two times in this prayer, in verse 27 and verse 30, Jesus is called what? God's holy servant. In verse 25, David is called God's servant. In verse 29, the folks that make up the early church, they're called servants. We're supposed to be servants. Verse 29, that's an incredible Greek word, doulos. Literally means bond slave, or, or we could transcribe that willing servant. Are we willing servants to Jesus? Is that the way we talk? Is that a term people use to describe themselves today? Oh, yeah, I'm Jesus' willing servant. I'll do whatever Jesus asked me to do. Well, that's a scary thing to say out loud, isn't it? Is that the way we describe ourselves? That has phenomenal application back in the day, but still very much today. Because the example we're supposed to imitate in this life is Jesus. Is that how we describe ourselves when we get together? Just a whole bunch of folks who are willing servants. If we do, that'll help us bear up 
under the trials and the persecutions and the tribulations. We would just study God's word and combine that with our understanding of this concept of servanthood. If we married those things together, we would get this sense of suffering so much better. Because when we study, that's what Jesus did. Jesus went to the cross for us. And do you remember his prayer when he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he was going to the cross to pay the debt of sin for all mankind? Do you remember what he said? He said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. What cup? The cup of wrath that our sinless Savior was going to go drink to pay the debt for my sin. Jesus is praying, and I'm paraphrasing, hey, that doesn't sound that pleasant. (laughs) Is there another way? Is there some other way this could take place without me going to the cross? That'd be really nice. But nevertheless, you ready? Not my will, but yours be done. Do we pray that? Jesus knew all about suffering, and he's our example. And we're supposed to grow in our Christ-likeness. We're supposed to become more like him. So in this life we're living on this earth, why would we think that everything is going to be all hunky-dory all the time? Do people still say hunky-dory? I say that. I'm from the Midwest. Why should we think we'll never have trials if we want to be more like Jesus? What do we know about Jesus? What do we learn in studying God's word? This is Mark 8. Right after Peter's confession that literally launched the church, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. They kept missing that part, but they they missed the suffering part too. Church, I hope and I pray this isn't a surprise for us to hear today. Do we want to identify with Christ? We're going to suffer. We shouldn't be surprised when the trials come individually. We shouldn't be surprised when the persecution comes for God's church. Paul's crystal clear about this with the church that met In Philippi, when he explains their desire to imitate Jesus, Paul writes this, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. I'm all for signing up for that one. Woo-hoo, Jesus, I want to know the power of your resurrection. And may share in his sufferings. Time out, Jesus. I like that first part better. Let's just have the power. I don't need the sufferings, right? Becoming like him in his death. Now, be real honest, OCC. Is that easy? No, that's hard. That's the hardest thing we're going to see in Scripture. That's the hardest command over and over and over again. Die to yourself. Die to yourself. Die to yourself. Die to yourself. Live for Christ. That's not supposed to be some cool tattoo we get on our arm. It's not something we're going to print on a T-shirt and wear proudly unless we mean it. We're only supposed to say it if we mean it. Jesus died so we can live. Will we imitate him? If so, we're going to demonstrate we're committed to God. It's our first big takeaway from this passage. The next two will go faster or we'll be here all day. But we can do this. Next takeaway on your outline. We're supposed to be committed to God's people. Now here the early church was pretty big. It was a mega church, about 5,000 people. And as soon as Peter and John are released, what do they do? They go to their people. They go to church, which I think is amazing. But that lets us see the early church really displayed commitment to one another in three key ways. They did it through community, they did it through unity, and they did it through generosity. 
First is the community part. That was evident then, and it is so evident, so important for the church to apply now. This has been one of the weirdest, still one of the neatest things for me to see about living here in the valley, right? Because we've lived here just over eight years now, and then the valley feels like home to us. But when we first moved here, we'd never lived anywhere but the little town we grew up in Missouri. And so we came from the Bible Belt. We came from the Midwest, and it was all Southern hospitality. And several of you, and I'm not going to call you out by name, made fun of my accent. I know who you are. And, and so I, I know I can get a little twangy every now and again. I say things like hunky-dory, but you've learned to love me. But, but one of the things that people talked about that I had no clue about, and, and, and they had a hard time kind of describing it, but they said there's this independent spirit of the Northwest. You heard that? That's how it's different from the Midwest. There's this independent spirit of the Northwest. And it's not that people are unfriendly, because they're not. People are super, super friendly. Here's the thing that I've learned. Here's what this is. We're just kind of guarded. Like, we'll let people in, but we won't let many people in, right? You got maybe a couple close friends. Not even your whole family. You got some key members of your family that you're kind of really close with. We have this independent spirit. We can do stuff on our own. Now, here's how I've seen this play out, and it's sad, honestly, to me. I get the opportunity to do quite a bit of counseling, and I do some outside the church. People will have friends in the church. Hey, my friend's really struggling with this. Could they come talk with you? I'll, I'll take a meeting with somebody like that. And, and so somebody came from outside the church, didn't know me at all, and they confessed they were really struggling with something, which I was pretty proud of them for that, but they were really kind of broken. And so I asked a question that I ask of virtually everybody, do you have somebody that you can go talk with? Do you have somebody who loves you enough to hold you accountable? Do you have somebody who will walk through this with you? And that person paused for a couple seconds while they were thinking, and they said, no. That just just breaks my heart. But I'll tell you this, and I'm not telling you to brag on you guys, but, but... Just a couple weeks later, I had somebody from the church, somebody inside the church, who came to meet with me and kind of shared the same thing. I I got this thing going on, and here's something that that I want to share with you. And and I asked the same question. Do you have somebody who will walk with you? Do you have somebody who loves you enough to speak the truth in your life? Do you have somebody who will hold you accountable? And immediately they named two other guys right here in the church. Oh, yeah, I got this guy and this guy. That's it. That when we talk about relational connection all the time, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about community. We're talking about loving people that way all the time. It is such a blessing to serve at a church where I see that. It was evident in the early church. It's super, super important. Are we committed to one another in community? The last two nods to being committed to God's people, really evident in the last few verses, verses 32 to 35 of Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Why not? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, this is beautiful. The early church was committed to unity. We saw that earlier in verse 24. It says they were of one accord. Here in verse 32, it says they were one heart, one soul. That is so descriptive of how Christ is supposed to work in the body of Christ, right? We're all parts of the body. We're just supposed to join God where he's working. 
by using the gifts he has given us. And, and all the gifts are going to be different. Not everybody's going to be an ear. Not everybody's going to be the mouth from the south. Not everybody's going to be the big toe, as if that's the most special of toes. Not everybody's going to be the pinky toe. It doesn't matter what you are. Not everybody's going to be the same, right? We all have these different gifts. We're all unique, but we're all supposed to be on mission together. We're supposed to be unified. Man, the early church, they got the unity part. And finally, we're supposed to be sold out to generosity. And again, I feel so blessed to be here, and I don't want to just make this whole sermon sound like I'm bragging on you guys, but man, this local church has the spirit of generosity. So pray to be to God for that. So what we're going to do, take out your wallets, and we're going to have some folks go down the aisles. And I'm kidding. We're not going to do it. A couple people are like, seriously? Is that what we're doing? No, no, but, but that's the idea, right? We understand this. And I said earlier in the announcements, we don't take an offering because we don't want folks who are visiting to think, well, that church is all about money. But we do try to be great stewards of the money God gives us. But in this passage, it's so great. This early church wasn't communist, okay? They weren't mandated to give this up. It wasn't a dictation that they had to do it. They did it generously. They wanted to do it. I think another neat thing is that you don't see people here in this passage anyway who are just hanging around trying to mooch off the church and trying to, to take advantage of the church. That doesn't seem to be present either, which is really incredible. It's just that these people cared about one another so deeply that they wanted to bear burdens together. So they modeled that for us. Now, sadly, this isn't going to last long, Okay. It's a fallen world. We're fallen people. When we come back to study next week, we're going to see how, how this can blow up. But the example isn't perfect, but it's still God's word. We're going to get to continue to see how the church moves forward, how it's unstoppable. But the trials, do they make us react in anger or do they make us respond in worship? These are questions to ask. Does persecution make us bitter or does it make us better? Are we committed to God? Are we committed to his people? These are super practical questions we need to ask ourselves. We can observe them here in the early church. Can we examine ourselves? See how we measure up? Here's a question as we close. Do things like trials, does persecution defeat us? Or does it make us look even harder for ways that we can join God in his work? I want to close with this story. I remember being just absolutely astounded by this. I read it in seminary years ago. There's an American author named Carl Lawrence who lived in China for many years. I haven't read all this book, just excerpts, but he wrote a book called The Church in China, How It Survives and Prospers Under Communism. But in this specific account, Lawrence wrote about a 19-year-old Christian girl in China who was arrested for being a Christian. And they beat her, and they threw her in jail in a filthy cell. It was dark but from the smell and, and the sliminess of the floor where she was, she, she knew the floor was covered with human waste. No bed, no chair, no toilet. So she had to sit and sleep and relieve herself on this filthy floor. And in that hard place, in jail, she squatted down so as little of her bleeding body as possible would touch the floor And she gave thanks to God that she was worthy to suffer for him. I give any new meaning to that passage in Philippians. It's not just the power of his resurrection. It's the fellowship of his suffering. And this young Chinese girl prayed a prayer. She asked for wisdom 
and strength. Listen, not to get out of that terrible place. No, her prayer modeled the pattern from the early church. It modeled the Lord's prayer. She didn't ask God, break me out of this prison. She prayed and asked that somehow she could find a way to continue to share the gospel while she was in prison. That was her prayer. And in what seemed like a a revelation, one day she spoke to her guard and she said, guard, can I go and clean the other filthy cells? Just give me a, a bucket and a brush and some water. Can I go clean their floors? Just give me that opportunity. And amazingly enough, he said yes. And that young girl went into all the other prison cells and led every other prisoner to Christ. Because she came in there when these people thought they're never going to see anybody in this life again who doesn't show up to beat them. And she came in, and what did she do? I wish I could kneel down. She knelt down and served them and cleaned the floors and told these people about Jesus. They had lost all hope, and this woman showed up telling the gospel message, and now they regained their hope, and they placed their faith in Christ. And the warden found out. And he was furious. And this young girl was beaten again. And and the guards brought her a piece of paper and a pencil. And they said, you need to write out your confession. Write out your crime. You know what she wrote down? Plan of salvation. She wrote the gospel so that even the warden could hear how much God loves us. Church, we will likely never face that degree of persecution. Would we be ready if we did? If that level of trial came, would we be committed to God? Would we be committed to his people? Would our prayer be, God, where can I join you in this work? God bless you guys. I sure do love you. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, you created everything, and we are in awe of you. God, help us to learn the trials that you allow in our lives. God, help us to learn, and God, help persecution to grow your church, to bring us into community, to bring us into unity, to bring us into generosity. God, help us to be sold out to you. God, may our prayer lives reflect that we're in awe of you and we want to join you where you're at work and we want we want your will to be done. God, I thank you for this church. Help us to be your church. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.